Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Chinny MacDonald, author of God is Not a White Man. Chinny MacDonald, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm delighted to have you. Okay, you were born, let's start at the beginning, in Nigeria. And um, can you remember life in Nigeria as a young girl? So I, yeah, we're going way back, aren't we? So yes. I, um, I remember um, quite a lot of uh, details, but it's one of those things where um, I don't know whether that's my memory or my family's stories, because we as Nigerians love to tell stories. <laughs> we tell the same stories over and over again. Um, but I moved from Nigeria when I was four. But interestingly, before we moved um, from Nigeria to the UK, my dad as a doctor had come over to, to Scotland to do a placement. And me and my sisters and my mum used to record him these little um, cassettes of what we were doing um, and how life was without him. And I remember listening back to those quite a few years later. And I had a very, very deep Nigerian accent as a, as a three, four-year-old child. Um, and that's kind of really interesting, kind of thinking about the journey that I've been on and how quickly my kind of accent changed when we moved to the UK. But I remember being surrounded by family. Um, we've yes. got a big family. Um, there are seven on my mum's side and six on my dad's side in terms of aunts and uncles. And I remember in those weeks when we were packing up to move, um, to leave everything that we'd ever known. Uh, and I sometimes think about the bravery of, of my parents in, in making that move. But we, we packed up everything, we sold a lot of things. And I remember us being um, at Lagos Airport um, and me and my mum and dad and my two little sisters. My younger sister was about nine months old at the time. And we were so just surrounded by family waving us off. My mum talks about how um, she remember being, she remembers being handed her, her children and thinking, how am I gonna cope by yes. myself without my family around me? So yeah, that's a, that's a really enduring memory. Isn't that interesting? Now, what was it like uh, when you started going to school in England? Yeah, it was, um, it was, fine and um, we grew up in, in southeast London we moved to Greenwich from Nigeria and I do remember being the only person who looked like me really in my class um, predominantly white um, school uh, and I remember once being um, I was five years old in reception class and our teacher asked us to draw a self-portrait and I remember getting a yellow pencil and drawing my long blonde hair, a light blue pencil and colouring in my eyes and pink pencil for my cheeks. And so my friend looked at my picture and said, that's not you. <laughs> and I remember being really disappointed. And it was this kind of first um, realisation or revelation of being different, different and potentially not being associated with... Um, goodness, beauty and whiteness, really. Yeah, and to be yourself. Yeah. But you, you felt you had to um, draw a picture to... Why did you draw the picture that you did? Did you feel that you had to project a particular image? I think, um, kind of looking back, I think it's 
I think that's what I thought I looked like. I don't. I think that's what I thought I looked like because that's what I could see around me. Um, and so therefore, why would I look any different? So I guess I drew myself like all the other little girls um, in my class or all, all my friends. Um, and it's, I guess, the moment of someone saying, you do not look like the rest of us, which really was quite painful. Quite. Yeah. But you, you ended up going to Cambridge University and um, what was interesting is that only two people from your school actually ended up at Oxbridge. Yes, yes. And, and you were one of the two. Yes. <laughs> and tell us about that uh, first formal dinner that you sat next to, uh, obviously, one of the professors. And uh, um, he commented about your meal. Yes. So um, at Cambridge, in your first night, we have a matriculation dinner. And it's in one of those grand formal halls where you walk in and you see these paintings of past masters and you feel like, wow, I have arrived at Cambridge, I'm finally here. And I studied theology and as a small subject, you got to sit on the master's table. Um, uh, so I remember kind of tucking into food um, and the uh, elderly fellow next to me kind of looked at my plate and said, I bet you're not used to this kind of food at home. <laughs> And what was the food? It was uh, chicken and potatoes. <laughs> Which you've eaten I've definitely many had those times. things before. <laughs> but I realised that, oh, okay, so I'm in, I'm in a different space now. I'm not in South East London anymore. Um, I am in a place where, um, where, when I was at uni there, there were more people with the surname White than there were black students at Cambridge at that time. This is early 2000s, it wasn't um, in the 50s or anything. Um, so yeah, a, a definite feeling of being different again. Different, of being other. yes. And in your year, your first year at Cambridge, uh, there's like 3,000 students and um, how many were black? 10. 10, and one of those was your cousin. Yeah, one of those was <laughs> cousin. And I knew all of the rest of them because we kind of would see each other and. Um, be, be friends with each other because we're, there weren't many of us, so we kind of stuck together. You're married to a white man, Mark. Where did you meet Mark? So we met at a Christmas party, um, a mutual friend, um, a friend of mine who I went to university with, um, who's also his friend, and we met uh, in the kitchen at a Christmas party. And uh, you've been married now for how long? Oh, five, five years. Five. And you had two um, weddings or two celebrations, one in Nigeria and one in England, uh, that were completely different. But I gather you had to buy, purchase presents for people back in your village in Nigeria. Yeah, so actually the first wedding, the Nigerian wedding, was not in Nigeria because we, um, we kind of thought that would be too, far too stressful. It was stressful enough anyway. So we had a very much a Nigerian wedding but in Hampshire. Yes. Um, so we, uh, yes, in, in Nigerian marriage tradition, there are all sorts of strange and wonderful kind of rites um, that you have to go through. And um, Mark was tasked with, um, or he was given what's called the list, which is a list of several items that he had to purchase for my family back in the village. So it was things like, um, fabric for my grandmothers, um, soap for women in the, for the single women in the village. Um, and even a goat. And, and even a goat. Um, and also money for a goat inspection as well, as well as some drinks. So I think at certain points Mark was like, what on earth have I got myself into? Um, yes, we had to, we had to find all these items and have them sent home. 
but it's I'm I'm Greek Cypriot and we have a culture and but there is something rich about culture and heritage there's some really good things and then of course there are some things where you need a bit of patience <laughs> yeah absolutely i think the you know the point of it is that you are marrying not just one person but a family of people a community of people who really care about that individual person so it's the joining of two families rather than two single people which i which i do love absolutely um so your book God is not a white man. What a fascinating title. <laughs> Did you struggle to decide what you would call it? Um, uh, it's one of those things where it, it, it arrived at some point after lots of deliberation. Um, the, the original title was going to be This I Know. And then the subtext, God is not a white man <laughs> and other revelations. But the publishers kind of said, well, the title is God is not a white man. Let's let's get rid of the kind of this I know bit. So, um, yes. And it's really interesting. My book is not just about this argument about whether God is white or not and how God and Jesus have been depicted over centuries. But it's really this kind of questioning of um, who we value in society. Um, and often that is um, men and white men in particular, and therefore what does that mean for um, black women in society and in the church? So, racism. Have you personally experienced racism growing up in England? Yes, um, I have. Um, and it's one of those things where no one's ever called me the N-word. Yes. I've never been faced any violence um, or brutalisation because I'm black. It hasn't been overt, but there have been definite kinds of, um, I will not say the word, microaggressions or subtle things sure. that make me feel like um, that I am lesser. Um, but it's not really just about me. It's about um, the black community in general, both um, in the UK and around the world. And how actually we're, think we're thinking and talking about centuries of oppression and violence and brutalisation and this idea that black people have um, are in some ways less made in the image of God than white people. Um, so it's, it's those kinds of things. Um, it's so, so tell us more, Sinead, where did that originate from? The, where did the kind of racism originate yes. from? So I think... Um, you can trace it back to, to several um, points in history, because if you look at the Bible, I think we often forget that the Bible is full of black and brown people um, rather than uh, white people. Um, you know, the, 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 the origins of the Christian story are in kind of um, uh, uh, North Africa, mid the Middle East. Um, so we often forget about that. But I think there's a definite, um, once you kind of move to um, the Enlightenment period and the 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 beginnings of the concepts of race and this I, these ideas that um, whiteness is superior to blackness um, because of power um, in order to exclude other people, in order to keep, keep some people at the bottom and some people at the top. Um, but I think it's, it's also sin. I think it's um, about human beings who, um, who are selfish, um, who are, want to um, create themselves or Kind of see themselves as better than others, um, which perpetuates kind of through the generations and through the centuries. How does 
how do you perceive racism being expressed currently around the world and in the UK? How do you see it at the moment? How does it surface? So one of the things that I have been nervous around in writing my book is um, the social media and the ways in which people can say whatever they want to you um, because they are behind a, a face. And you find that lots of black people and black women um, can see literal examples of people saying actual racist things at them. So I think um, social media and the kind of digital age um, shows us the kind of very obvious ways in which there, are race, there is racism. But I think racism is also um, pervasive in our institutions. So if you look at the disparities that there are between black people and white people in, in the UK, it, those disparities exist in the health um, system. For example, I'm four times more likely to die in childbirth as a black woman as uh, compared to my white friends who have children. What? Because? So it's... It, who knows? Who knows what those reasons are? Um, some of it is around um, kind of thinking anecdotally. It's about perceptions of black people, um, whether it's that black people can take more pain or um, aren't um, aren't trustworthy or intelligent enough. So, so there are often examples of people not believing that black black women are in you know in real distress when going through childbirth. Um, but there are also um, people have done studies which show that it's regardless of whether you are um, middle class or working class, if you're a black woman, you're much more likely to face these outcomes in the health system. And that's, that's devastating, isn't it? You, you mentioned earlier, uh, racism is sin. And we, we need to call it out for what it is. Yep. It is sinful. Yeah. And it's, it's a sin that is both individual, but also structural sin as well. I think it's possible for us to talk about our institutions and, and the church in, in many ways has perpetuated this idea of, of racism. And it's really difficult and painful for us to think about it. But if you look at um, the Ku Klux Klan, for example, um, in, in America, Ku Klux Klan leaders were often also church leaders um, and there was no kind of hiding or shame about that. So um, so there was that. There's also the fact that if we think about the missionary movement um, from you know, year, years ago, this idea and this alignment of Christianity with whiteness and often with Englishness, and actually those things were, were kind of one and the same. And my great my great grandfather was uh, an Anglican priest um, in southeast uh, rural Nigeria and he and my great-grandmother used to run a school for Christian wives and what would happen was when a woman was about to get married she would come and stay at this school to learn what it meant to be a good Christian wife um, but actually what that meant was they taught them how to bake cakes and how to drink tea properly out of um, China and you realise that actually we were confusing Christianity with Englishness. Yes. This idea of getting kind of uh, of getting better and more kind of middle class and whiter, um, and that's not what the Christian faith no. is about. So I mean, they, uh, Nigeria is full of colour and culture, and I mean, those are the things that they should have been encouraged in. Yeah. Not making a cup of tea. Not making a cup of tea as great as a cup of tea is. Um, yeah, and that is one of the things that is so devastating. This this 
we often fail to remember that God created each of us um, in all of our wonderful diversity um, and vibrancy. And we can, cups of tea are great, but also spicy pepper soup in Nigeria is great as well. So how can we as the church um, kind of celebrate that more and make those things equal rather than saying one is better than the other? Uh, this last year, of course, uh, significant. There was a significant day when George Floyd uh, lost his life, um, and th th that created almost like a tipping point, didn't it? Uh, and it captivated and captured the world. Mm. Um, but those problems have always existed. What, what do you think happened or shifted on that day and since that day? So I think there were a, there was a particular set of circumstances that surrounded that, weren't there? Because actually in the days after and the days before, there had been other um, black people who had been shot or, or killed by the police in the US. But we were kind of living in a global pandemic and everything was quieter. And I think we were all kind of our senses were heightened to, I guess, injustice um, or the darkness that there is in the world in a way that we hadn't before. And the fact that this was filmed and was yeah. pr a prolonged, agonising death that we could all watch. And I think we couldn't then deny that because you're asking the question, why on earth did that happen to a human being? And then that, that has caused people to ask questions about um, you know, what are the structures in place? Um, what is, um, what are the views that white police officers or white people have about black people that could lead to that situation? Um, so I think, um, I think it led to a, a reckoning with racial justice that we hadn't seen in a long time, but there have been various points in history where those things have happened. Um, so the civil rights movement, or yeah. um, I remember living in Eltham in South East London when Stephen Lawrence was oh, yes. killed um, when I was uh, nine. And th there have been all sorts of names associated with, yeah. with death that we then rally around and we think surely things have to change. And, but I'm really hoping um, that this one, this one might lead to real and lasting change, both in, in society and in the church as well. Okay, what needs to happen? So I, I think that there, um, it can be really easy to answer the question in, and think, um, well, we need more diverse leadership and we need um, quotas or um, we need to think about um, whose stories we tell in churches or in, or, in, or in our screens. But I think it goes deeper than that as well. I think that there needs to be a fundamental um, re-education or an unlearning of the things that we have um, taken for granted um, when it comes to thinking about black people. Um, so, so I, um, over the past year, have done a lot of reading and um, reading about black history, reading black theology um, and learning all these things that I didn't know um, about um, my people. And I think that that's, those are stories that we need to uncover for all of us, not just black people, to be aware of the, those histories and, and to recognise that black history is all of our history and can reshape how we see the world today and the future for our children. Absolutely. And what can we do personally? So I think um, creating space to listen to black people, to our black friends, to people in our churches, to listen and not get defensive. Because I think that's one of the things that I often experience is that people 
don't want to be seen as the bad guys. Um, so they create all sorts of explanations why they might think um, certain ways or why why that particular black person was killed. Um, I think we need to listen uh, to other people's stories and we need to not put ourselves into those stories. Um, I think once you can really walk in someone's shoes and empathise and understand what it must be like for someone who is in a different skin to you, I think that can only um, help to reshape how we how we see the world going forward. Um, but there's also kind of lots of there are lots of books that we can read, uh, lots of things that we can watch that to, to educate ourselves as well. So uh, back back to your book. Okay, God is not a white man. Tell us more about how do you perceive God? Yes, so I. Um, I still perceive God, to be honest, when I close my eyes, when I pray, um, I still see a white white man. Um, I see Jesus as a white man. I see God as a, an old white man. And that's because of you know, 37 years of seeing images of God represented in, in that way. So I'm trying to um, free my mind of thinking of God um, first as a human being, because God is bigger. God is bigger than that. God is bigger than we can imagine. Um, I went to, uh, I spoke at a school last summer um, and I asked uh, these year five and six uh, pupils what they thought God looked like. And I thought that they would say, like Father Christmas, um, but they said some amazing things. They, they said things like, I think God looks like a ball of fire. Yes. Uh, a ball of energy. Or I think God looks like a, a, a yin yang sign, half yes. black and half white. And these kind of descriptions were totally um, different to what I had, you know, what I had in my head or what I thought they would say. So I think that we need to kind of um, rethink um, who God is, go back to scripture, look at the descriptions of sure. God in, in the Bible. So, um, so we've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Obviously, Jesus um, was Jewish in the Middle East. So we can have a certain picture of what he may have been like. Yes. And that is acceptable. Yes. So, I th- yes, Jesus, um, the historic Jesus doesn't look like the images that we see of no. Jesus if we walk into a cathedral or if we walk, walk into an art gallery, um, because that Jesus doesn't look like a Middle Eastern Jewish person. He doesn't. No, he looks like a, a hippie from, from America in the 1970s. Um, and that that tells you something about, again, who we, who we prize as kind of worthy or, you know, worthy of being God. Um, so, so yes, the, the Jesus, the historic Jesus, is a brown Middle Eastern Jew, and we need to see more of those images, I think. Yes. But but if you go to, um, I find it really interesting that if you go to Christian homes in Nigeria or in India, you will find images of Jesus um, that are of Jesus as a white, white man with blue eyes, and that's problematic. I understand like us being able to see Jesus in our own culture because that is what the incarnation is about. Um, but when you recast <laughs> um, Jesus as a white, uh, blue-eyed person, I think that's um, wrong. Of course. So when you pray, when we pray our Father in heaven, how should we be perceiving God? 
I think that there are, um, I think, yeah, God is like our father, but there are also descriptions, if you look um, back at, you know, biblical Hebrew of God being described um, in as a mother yes. figure. Um, so, so we need to think of God as both those things and more than those things, um, not, not kind of um, reducing God, the father, to God, a man who is white, <laughs> which is the problem that we've, I think, created for ourselves. You obviously write, as your title says, and other revelations. What other revelations kind of um, were illuminating to you? Yeah, so I um, there were lots of revelations I had through writing writing this book, and I guess there is one chapter in it which is about depictions of God. But really, what I'm trying to say in the book is that whether or not um, we you know agree or disagree with this idea concept that God is not a white man, if you look at most areas of society um, from um, uh, education to how we perceive Africa or I write about my interracial marriage in there there is throughout those things this understanding um, or this view that whiteness is better than any other color um, and so the other revelations are um, that love is not colorblind for example so yes. I talk about you know yeah. I've written a book called God is not a white man um, but I'm married to a white man and it's not, it's not that I don't like white men um, but actually in and um, there are all sorts of kind of questions about um, when two cultures come together and whether some cultures are seen as better than others I talk about um, a revelation that Africa shock horror is not a country and how we um, depict um, people from Africa as this kind of one yeah. homogenous group of people um, who are often uh, living in poverty or corrupt um, yes. and how can we um, repaint um, the stories of African people as um, diverse, um, wonderful, creative, sure. vibrant and made in the image of God. So yeah, lots of different types of Because the of African continent is like 54 countries and yeah. 1,300 languages. Yes, lots and lots and lots. <laughs> we can't be kind of reducing it to one, a one-dimensional um, continent. But I guess the other, the main revelation that I come to at the end of my book is um, that the kingdom of God should be like a mosaic. So if you think about a mosaic, um, a mosaic is messy, like there aren't uniform pieces, there are different colours, um, they don't all fit together nicely but part of the beauty is when you step back and you look at it as a whole, so how can the church be more like that and what difference would it make to my son who is um, three and a half, a biracial boy growing up in the UK, if we saw each of us as precious pieces in that mosaic? Yeah, I, I, that was one of the things I really liked when I read your book, uh, Chini, the, the mosaic. Um, and that's, yeah, that's something for us to pray for, something for us to work for. Chini, thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Thank you. Oh, I hope you found that inspiring and um, challenging. And we do need to pray that God will give us the grace uh, to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Wow, isn't that a lovely picture for us to pray that uh, his church, the bride, uh, would 
express in a mosaic way uh, the beauty of all of God's people. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.